Ringer MLB show is presented by Google Cloud. Companies around the world are solving their most important challenges with Google Cloud, like PayPal, who's solving for millions of daily hopes, dreams, and financial ambitions. And Google Cloud is helping them achieve their mission to transform the prosperity and opportunity of millions of businesses around the world. With massive scale and processing power, PayPal is connecting Main Street to every street. Google Cloud, what are you solving for? Visit g.co slash cloud slash solve. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. I'm joined by uh, my good friend and colleague, Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, so what we're going to do is I have the win totals for each N- or for each National League team from Caesars Palace Sportsbook. Uh, we are going to do the over-under game by way of previewing the National League. Uh, but first, there's a little bit of news that I think we ought to talk about. Uh there is uh, a lot of movement in Major League Baseball the past couple days in terms of uh, response to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, I am down here in Arizona right now, where as of uh, Tuesday, uh, Major League Baseball has closed clubhouses to the press. Uh, the uh, governor of Washington has uh, he has decreed. Uh, decreed like he's the, the king. He's <laughs> That's de- very declared the people in large large. Uh, uh, crowd gatherings, uh, which somewhat surprisingly to me includes uh, Seattle Mariners games are are off the table for the foreseeable future. They are moving at least at the very least moving their opening weekend series. Um, you know, as much as, you know, I just made a joke about this. This is an incredibly serious issue that I, I think it's it stretches so far beyond sports that I think the sports apparatus as such is a little unprepared for for how to deal with it. And I think I don't know, Major League Baseball. I don't know. Well, what what is uh, uh what does this look like uh, to someone who's who's not uh, in the process of, of negotiating clubhouse act or negotiating <laughs> player access at this moment? Yeah. Well, I was in airports and confined spaces last week. We both f- picked a fine time to travel, but I think there's been kind of a dissonance to the response of the sports world in general and baseball specifically. And maybe it's not surprising given the money that's at stake, unfortunately, and also just given the lack of precedent and the scale of this and just the way sports works, the logistical issues and all of that. But for a while there, I think teams were just trying to dip their toe into preparedness and changing autograph policies and media policies. And I'm not saying don't do that, but that always felt like whistling past the graveyard a little bit and just hoping that things wouldn't get worse when all indications are that it very likely will. And so I think we're now finally at the point where it's pretty impossible to pretend that this is not going to be disruptive to the sports world and to baseball as it has been to the world at large. And so I would be somewhat surprised at this point if the season start is not postponed or if we don't see a lot of alternate locations. Even that doesn't seem like a, a perfect location. Seems but, like, I mean, that seems like a terrible idea that you're just right. moving people from infected areas to non-infected areas insofar as those even exist. So Exactly, right. And the Korean Baseball Organization and the Nippon Professional Baseball, Korea and Japan, have both postponed the start of their season and they've had empty crowds throughout spring training and Of course, they were hit harder and earlier than we were here, so maybe it's understandable, but that always seems sort of like a bellwether. I mean, when I saw that, it was, oh, this is what's going to happen here. It's almost inevitable, and I think there was a lot of denial about that. So Mm -hmm. now I think that denial is receding, and we're probably going to start to see some movement and announcements soon. Yeah, I think there's a natural American tendency, and I, you know, don't say that. I'd say that being guilty of it myself to think that this can't happen here, mm-hmm. uh, and it, I it just sort of, you know, been paying attention to, to what had been happening uh, in Asia and and in Italy in particular, and this was sort of in the very back of my mind when I came down here, and it's just really in the seven past seventy two hours where we've seen. Uh, a lot of these restrictions on large crowds in the United States. Some of the stuff that's happened in Italy, like they've essentially, to my understanding, put the country on lockdown. And it's stuff like, you know, we we've never seen a baseball season or a game or, or like a 
more than like a weeks long disruption for for something right. like this for any kind of real world uh event or tragedy and you know i just assumed that the that the sport was going to soldier through until like we're seeing you know a lot of the big cycling races are are being canceled or postponed in in italy you know we're seeing the impact this is happening on formula 1 and now it's you know it's uh very it's very real now uh mm-hmm. and just you know being in the not in the clubhouse but but at pregame media availability uh just how much that's changed has has really made this sink in um yeah. so i'm i'm with you i think that you know i'll say this there's been a lot of i think this is a secondary issue in terms of um baseball writers being worried about getting clubhouse access back i think that that's a good thing to keep in the in the back of everybody's mind but i think that's a a struggle mm-hmm. for you know that's that's something that's something we're gonna have to deal with after this blows over um and, yep. and in the meantime you know just the the couple the rockies and the a's the two teams i've been to camp with with the closed club has been been pretty good about giving access so um it's uh it's it's real now in a way that it wasn't and i'm with you i i would shock me if we don't get some kind of of cancellation you know, at this point, I think it would be irresponsible not to have some kind of change yes. to the schedule. It's, you know, definitely a, a substantial possibility that we could feel foolish in a couple of weeks uh, when the, the if the baseball season, you know, we lose a, a chunk of it, like lose a couple of weeks even um, mm-hmm. just because you can't congregate like this. So right. I'm irresponsible you know, is, the, is the word I was going to use it. It's a game. We all want it to go right. on, obviously. And baseball has a history of going on during tragedies and during world wars. And right. it can be a force that brings people together during times of hardship. But this is a little different in that bringing t- people together is exactly what you don't want to do <laughs> during a pandemic. And so I think it makes sense to err on the side of caution. And I don't know if it is just inertia or profit seeking or macho image of sports and virile men playing on a field and not wanting to take a day off or admit when they're hurt or that sort of thing. But obviously, it's one thing to protect the players and it's another thing to protect your fans and your audience. And there are many more of them than there are the players. So they really have to be the priority at this point. So I do think that we will start to see some movement there. I will just say to try to end on a slightly lighter note (laughs) at the end of this doom and gloom introduction, I am glad that before the clubhouse was closed, you got to meet your idol. That was that was exactly where I was going. This is the second big piece of news that we need to talk about. Uh, after years of the Lance Lynn bit, I actually interviewed him in Texas Rangers camp, the very last MLB clubhouse media session before they they close it out. I've got a couple pieces coming out next week that uh, he was a relevant voice on. Um, he's just delightful. That's Lovely wonderful. eyes, great beard. Uh, comforting, large physical presence. You know, it's certainly bad from a public health perspective to to hug Lance Lynn now. Uh, but you know, I did you uh, keep your distance I'm, because you told us that you had seen Lance Lynn just hours before I saw the announcement that clubhouses were closed, and this immediately was, this was my mind went the, to, "What did Michael do? Did he do something inappropriate in Lance Lynn's so, presence?" So here's what I'll say: I did not, as you uh, as you suggested when I told you about this the other day rub beards with him um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we had like a very you know your standard player in his locker interaction you know i stood mm-hmm. a couple feet away and held my recorder up in his face and asked him questions and he answered and you know we went on our way um th- yeah so this was before the the six feet quarantine zone i think like uh, there's not like there aren't like people going around with with tape measures but i think you know it's it, it there's a it, this has made me aware of of the amount of handshaking uh, mm-hmm. that that takes place in your basic like player team media interaction, and uh, so I've exchanged elbow bumps with a couple couple players since the um, since the directive went into effect. Um, but yeah, yeah. it's I've, it, I mean figuring just, out how to introduce yourself to a player in a clubhouse is always it feels a, rude. It feels it's, rude it's not an to shake hands. Kind of interaction, but particularly <laughs> at a time like this. But. I'm happy for you. I'm glad we don't all get to meet our heroes and sometimes our heroes let us down. So I'm glad Lance Lynn did not. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, he's either been in, in a different division or different league or ju- we just hadn't run into each other until that point. I will say if, if he's aware of the stuff I've been writing about it, he did a <laughs> writing about him. He's, he did a good job of, of acting normal. I'm sure so, he was uh, just as excited as you were. He was just trying to keep it inside. There was, there was a little twinkle in his eye. I, mm-hmm. I would be lying if, if I said, uh, 
said otherwise. All right, let's get to the the over unders now that we've got those two important pieces of news uh, out of the way. Like I said, this is uh, the Caesars Palace sports book. I imagine these lines will change at some point, but th- I think this is just a good baseline to, to go off of. Uh, let's go from east to west, uh, because as we all know, the West Coast doesn't matter at all. Everybody lives on the East Coast. That's where the uh, center of American culture is. So uh, let's start with the National League East. The Braves have the highest over-under total in that division at 90. The defending champions, uh, they have made a couple additions in the this offseason with Cole Hamels, who's currently on the aisle and, uh, or probably will will be on the aisle to start the season. Marcelo Zuna, uh, a lot of promising young players. You have over-under there. I think I'm going to take over here. I'm not going to try to get cute and take under on everything on the assumption that some games will get canceled. <laughs> so if that That's happens, All right. we can, yeah, just, uh, we can prorate that or something. Let's add that if, if this is a 120-game season or something, these takes are all null and void. Yes, right. So this is kind of tough because the top two teams in the division last year both lost their superstar third baseman over the winter and didn't really directly replace them, which seems like a serious concern for both of them. But I think with the Braves, I'm going to go over. And with the Nationals, honestly, I'm kind of tempted to go under at 88.5. I think there's some vulnerability there. And it's easy to remember them as the sort of post-May, whatever it was, the magic date last Mm -hmm. year when they became the best team in baseball, when they were healthy and and guys came back. But they did still play those games before the guys came back. And Anthony Rendon missing many of those games was one of the problems. And he's going to miss every Nationals game this year. So I don't think you can completely write it off and say they're the team that they were after the slow start. The slow start counts, too. Yeah, I just based on on those two teams, Braves at 90 Nats at 85, 88 and a half, I'd go the opposite way, actually. I think the Bra- I'd take the under on the Braves, the over on the Nationals. I think mm-hmm. both of those, the the point about missing Donaldson and Randone uh, is important. I think both teams are fairly well equipped to weather that based on their internal options. And they both uh, done you know, a decent amount of, of tinkering or, or moving guys around to, to suit needs. Um, so, I, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure on guys like Austin Riley and Carter Keyboom to, to fill those spots in the lineup. Yes, um, Carter Keyboom, I think, very, very intriguing player. I don't know what to expect from him, but a lot is riding on him. He could be the second best, or he could be the second best uh, NL East shortstop from, well, I guess he won't play shortstop, second best NL East infielder from Marietta, Georgia, after Dansby Swanson. Um <laughs> What So what I would say, the Nationals, the reason that I'm a little bit more bullish on them is I think that some of their guys are still, some of their top players are still really young. So I think Victor Robles still has a lot of room to improve. I think we shouldn't rule out the possibility that Juan Soto's got another gear to go to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my take on the NL East is the only thing I know for sure is the Marlins are going to finish last. And I just, I... I'm a little afraid to predict anything else. Uh, so, but with that said, you know, I see where you're coming from, even though I had it the other way around. What about yeah, the Mets I'm at 87? A little worried, by the way, about the the Nationals rotation depth. Obviously, the, the top three or top four is the same as it was last year. But if you get anything less out of those guys and then you're counting on Joe Ross in your fifth spot and then even scarier options after that, that could get kind of hairy. So Mets, I'm going to go bullish here, not just because Bobby is listening, but I'm taking the over on the Mets at 87. Wow, I think this is the Mets year. Yeah, this is it. I mean, they were close I, last year when so much went wrong. Granted, there was also that period where they didn't lose for weeks at a time, but still a lot went wrong, even by Mets standards, and they still ended up just about there. And now they have a full season of Stroman, and I I would hope that they have better luck, better health in certain ways, although it's never safe to count on that in the Mets case. So, yeah, I think this is the year. I I think there's a so here's what I'll say. There is a a near zero chance that Edwin Diaz isn't better than he was last year. He has to be. Yeah. But I mean, you mentioned like rotation depth. I I like their top three, but I like it a lot less in Washington's. And, you know, Mats and Porcello have been good in the recent past. I I'm not immensely confident about uh, about their ability to uh, um, to produce it at the big league level this year. And then you're getting into the Corey Oswaltz and, you know, maybe David Peterson uh, can come up and, and contribute. You know, they've got 
probably a little bit more pitching depth in the high minors than the the Nats do. But I, you know, I, I went over on the Nationals, so I guess there's a little bit of room in there behind them to go over on the Mets. But I think this this looks like an 85-86 win team mm-hmm. uh, to me. So I, I don't think I wouldn't go way under, but I'd still go under. Can I ask you, as the resident Mets fan on the podcast right now? I feel like Syndergaard might be the barometer for what happens with this team this year. Like if he has a great year as he did in 2016 or if he has a injury prone year like 2017 or even a down year like he did in the last year. Um, so, Mike, can I ask you, since you said that you were not as high on their top three as you would be on Washington's top three, even though I feel like there's a lot of injury questions with Washington's mm-hmm. top three as well, maybe more injury questions. Can I ask you if I told you that Noah Syndergaard was 2016 Noah Syndergaard and that was the real version of him? And that he refigured things out based on like how confident he seems in being shirtless and throwing bullpens this off this this preseason. Yeah, here's it. So I'll say this: Noah Syndergaard's self confidence has not necessarily tracked with his well, yeah, uh, with his production. Throw that out I'll then. Then can I ask you just then, like, if it was really that 2016 is the version of him that you're going to get? How confident would you be in this team going way over? That's actually, you know, as much as I'm a little bit down on Syndergaard right now, I think that's not as big a question as Matt's and Porcello. I think if those guys uh, get back to where they were in 20, I mean, Porcello is not going back to where he was in 2016. Uh, But if you just get comp to big, you know, maybe call it like 300 combined solid innings out of those guys, I think that would make a bigger difference to me uh, than what Syndergaard does. And DeGrom is so good that I think the pressure on Syndergaard and Stroman to a, to a certain extent uh, is lessened uh, to be, you know, real top of the rotation starter. So, you know, I, if you promise me that, that Syndergaard was going to be 2016 Syndergaard, then I, I'd pr- that would probably push me to the, to take the over in terms of way over. I think like that rotation depth is still, uh, maybe not as good as we would assume from the names and also from what, what, what we're used to with the Mets. Yeah, I'd feel a little bit better about them if instead of trying to pick up marginal guys, fringy guys like Waka and Porcello, they had spent that same money or even a little more money on someone a little bit more dependable because there were plenty of middle tier starters out there and they sort of went bargain bin shopping. So that scares me a little bit. Even Batansis, which I I think it's smart to take a a flyer on Batansis, but even if you had put the money that you devoted to those three sort of risky plays on someone you could count on, I'd feel a little bit better. But I'm hoping for a revival from Robinson Cano. And of course, it's the year of Yuenna Cespedes and Jed Lowry. What frustrates me about the Mets actually is uh, they've done so many difficult things well and they've whiffed on a lot of the easy, the easy yeah. things. And I think that's the difference between them being, in, you know, being in the 80s the past couple of years and and really following up that 2015 season with something special. Um, yeah. Speaking of the a lack of rotation guys depth. Who've been better yeah. at, at putting... I, ben, I'm trying to do a segue. Come on. <laughs> okay, All right. go ahead. Speak, we we got to move this along. Yeah. Uh, speaking of lack of rotation depth, the Phillies at 85. You, you want over or under? Under, which yeah. uh, <laughs> looking at the Phillies projections, it's somewhat shocking. No matter what system you look at, they're high 70s, maybe low 80s. And if that's where they end up, and I don't really disagree with that number, that really throws the whole rebuild into question if it's not already. I just don't know that they're actually making forward progress at this point. And you savaged the Zach Wheeler deal when they made it. And I don't know, the money maybe looks a little more reasonable in retrospect just because of how the market went after he signed. But I think as he pointed out at the time, there were many other holes that they had to fill and they didn't fill some of them because that was the big splurge of the offseason. And there's still a lot of weakness and vulnerability there, and I just don't know if I see a great upside either. So they seem to have sort of stalled, and I don't really know where they go from here. Yeah, I compare their offseason moves to what the White Sox did, for instance. Uh, and, you know, the the Phillies got one of the big free agents in the 2018-19 offseason, so they were a little bit ahead of that. Uh, but at the same time, they didn't have anything like that farm system. But just... They did the same thing, which is sort of ignore the top tier of free agents this year and identify, I think, correctly that the middle tier of of this free agent class is where the strength was. And the White Sox just got way better players out of that bar, out of that mm-hmm. bid. And uh, it's I, it just looks like a similar plan with wildly different execution. Here's I, the one caveat I'll say to, to leaven my Phillies pessimism is that production was just so far down across the board with this team last year for guys who have been 
just the most reliable big leaguers, Harper, Real Muto, Segura. Um, I do want to hold off judgment with this team until I see maybe a, a month or two of how they produce under Joe Girardi as opposed to Gabe Kapler. Cause I think that that's a big shift in terms of clubhouse culture. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, th- I know that's a squishy thing, but it is something that I'm interested to, to see the effects of. Cause I think it, it could make a big difference here. Uh, maybe more than anywhere else in baseball. I agree. All right. Marlins 65. Over on the Marlins. I think they tried this offseason. They're not good, obviously, and they're going to be the worst team in the division, probably by a good amount. But I think they did what a lot of teams aren't doing right now, which is trying to avoid being terrible, even at a time when they know they're not going to be good, which I don't know in the long term whether that actually pays off or not. But they did kind of paper over some of the cracks with decent veterans who will not be sub-replacement level holes on the roster. So I think they've done enough to get over 65, although I will note that they have the hardest strength of schedule projected Mm -hmm. according to Fangraphs, which just seems sort of unfair if you're the Marlins. Just give them an easy schedule, give them some sort of help, but they have to contend with the most difficult schedule on top of everything else. Even so, over. Yeah, there's going to be no easy division games for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for that reason, I'd go under. Uh, I agree with you. I mean, we tried Marlins 2020 video play or video yearbook. Yeah. Um, all right. NL Central. Uh, this is another jumbled up division that I could see any one of four teams taking. Uh, tops among them. The the spread here on the over under total uh, is uh, only four wins between the, or I, I should say among the first four teams. Tops among them, Cardinals 86 and a half. Yeah, uh, just put them all down for 85 and be done with it. I I hardly want to do that. Do you just want to like literally predict it <laughs> four way 85 and 77 tie? It sort of seems like that. I, I just I can't see great separation here. And obviously there's not much separation in the over unders. So if I had to say that I'm more bullish about one team than another, I guess I would go over on the Cubs at 85.5. I just think maybe there's a a bit more of a rebound there and just that the core is good enough that they could get over that number, even though they essentially did nothing this offseason. So semi-confident in that, semi-confident in under on the Cardinals at 86.5, I think, because they were also quite inactive at the major league level. And I'm going to go over on the Reds at 85, I think. Not by much. Again, this is like push all the way down because I I basically do see these all as roughly 85 win teams Mm -hmm. and whichever one stays healthy or gets lucky will end up winning a few more games than that and take the division basically. But I don't know how to predict which one it'll be. So I'll say Reds over. They've certainly done a lot of work on the roster and perhaps it will start to pay off. And then the other competitive team, the Brewers, I think I'm going to go under on the Brewers, which is sort of scary because I, I do have this sense that Brewers Black Magic will get them above low 80s. Like, there was somebody, there was a quote uh, yes. from like an anonymous NL ex- executive uh, floating around mm-hmm. uh, to that effect. And I, I think that's a distinct possibility. Yeah, I was just about to cite that, except that someone tweeted okay. at us to <laughs> ask us to stop cursing so much on the podcast. So I didn't <laughs> want to do it, but I can quote a curse. I think he was addressing that tweet to you because uh, you're usually the one who works blue here. But it uh, was- I'm sorry. An anonymous executive in Ken Rosenthal's column about how we shouldn't underrate the Brewers who said, do I like their team on paper? I never do, but they know how to win fucking games. So that kind of has tended to be true in recent years. They've Mm kind of had this weird rebuild where they never really bottomed out. And so they never really developed a great core. And yet they've managed to supplement their pieces with pretty good pickups and Yelich, obviously. So that's a hard thing to repeat and do every year, but they've done it to this point. Yeah, Yelich papers over a lot of those cracks just all by himself. So here, and you know, I like the, the Josh Lindblom pickup. Here's what I will say. I was going to go over on the Brewers until I had this thought this morning uh, when I was thinking about these over-unders, which is, I wonder how much the Eric Lauer injury is going to impact this team. And I was like, well, if you're relying on Eric Lauer, you're <laughs> right. probably going to. It's not a great you know, sign. I, it's, as much as I love Kent State legend Eric Lauer, uh, that's not a not an awesome harbinger. So I'm going to go under on the Brewers. I'm going to go over on the Reds. Uh, I love that pitching staff. I yes. think that's sneakily in 
one of the best pitching staffs in the National League, mm-hmm. like non-Nationals, non-Dodgers division. Um, they've got a... I'm very, very interested to see how they array all the uh, 14 third basemen they seem to have acquired. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they probably wouldn't have done it if they didn't have a plan, so we'll <laughs> see how it works. Uh, I'll go under on the Cubs just because I don't want to root for a team that had an offseason like that. And uh, what you said about the the Brewers-Devil magic I think also applies to the Cardinals. I think I will also go... <sighs> if I go under on the Cardinals here, does that mean I think the Reds are going to win the division? Yeah, pretty much. All right. All right. Maybe I've just talked myself into that. I will go under on the Cardinals. Now, I will say they're going to win like 84 games knowing that that's going to translate to them winning 94 uh, because that's just how it works for the Cardinals every year. Uh, Do we want to think about the Pirates? (laughs) As little as possible. So I'm going to say under on 68 for the Pirates. Yeah, 68. Uh, You went over on on 65 for the Marlins because they tried. I'm going under on 68 for the Pirates because they did not. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that brings us to the National League West. Uh, And this is actually, this is my favorite number. I think this is the most interesting number we've got. The Dodgers, 102 wins. Yeah. Everything in my brain rebels at the idea of picking a team to finish over under two wins. This is this is part of the reason I'm this is part of the reason I'm so excited. All of my experience, all of my training that has led me to this moment is telling me you can't pick a team to go over 102 no matter how good it is. And yet I'm doing it over on the Dodgers at 102. How could they not win 102? First of all, I mm-hmm. feel like I'm under on just about every other team in this division and their numbers aren't even that high to begin with. So the Dodgers have the easiest strength of schedule in the league or in the majors, maybe, which, again, seems unfair. It might just be a factor of them not having to play the Dodgers. <laughs> yes, pretty much. And having to play all these other teams in the NL West. And you take the team that was there last year that is pretty much returning, except they also have Mookie Betts now. And it's just unfair. I I just, barring some sort of horrible Yankees-like injury luck without the Yankees out of nowhere replacement. I just don't see how they really go under triple digits or even 102 for that matter. What's the path to not finishing there? That's exactly right. And I it's not just they have to avoid the Yankee like injury luck. You it's so obvious how they withstand it if that happens. Because of the amount because they've done this, they've built this team that's been this dominant in the National League West. And the way at, at the same time they built up one of the best farm systems in baseball. So you know, you just they're just plugging Gavin Lux into into this lineup. I think Eric Longhagen and Fangraphs, I think, had him second overall on his top prospect list. Mm-hmm. Just this is a, a lineup that has already produced Corey Seager. You know, that has already just plucked him out of out of its uh, farm system. It's already plucked uh, Cody Bellinger out of its farm system. You, know, it, you they lose. Uh, you know, they didn't get a whole lot of production out of Rich Hill last year, but uh, they replace him and Hyunjin Ryu, which is a big loss. Uh, with David Price, Dustin May is going to be up for a full season. Mm-hmm. They've got Brewster Gratterall to fill in in the bullpen. I think the bullpen could be a weakness, but also that bullpen might have to protect have to protect fewer high leverage close leads uh, than any other in baseball. Mm-hmm. And I just I'm with you. I I see a way easier path to 120 wins than I do to 90 yeah. with this team. Yeah. I think it's over, maybe way over. Yeah, I never thought I would be at the point where I'm saying this, but hey, it's this. I'm glad you're acknowledging this because I was worried that you were just going to naturally like fall back on the. Is it is it because I'm just looking like part of this is Pakoda has them over 102. Is that just like part of your uh, your calculus? Yeah, I, I think I saw that when they came out with their projections, it was the highest they had ever projected a team. But just the lineup, it's just an all-star lineup. Almost literally from top to bottom, I could imagine any of those players being an all-star caliber player. Will Smith for a full season, it just goes on and on. They promoted basically a a really strong core of a good team last year in the middle of the season on top of the great core they already had, which kind of future proofs them. But even just talking about this year, I, I just don't know how wrong it could actually go. So yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that we're in this strange era in baseball and Maybe we're coming out of it a little bit so that the standings won't be quite as stratified as they were last year and the haves and the have nots won't be separated by quite as much. But there are still some super teams that don't have a lot of competition and the Dodgers are prime among them. 
All right, let's actually let's skip ahead to the Padres, who are third on this list in 83, because I was saying at the time of the Mookie Betts trade, I don't think this is an unpopular opinion by any stretch of the imagination. Baseball would have been so much more fun if the Padres had pulled off that trade as opposed Mm -hmm. to the Dodgers. As it stands, 83, I think definitely undersells their potential. I think we were maybe a year early on this team last year. Uh, I could definitely see them as a playoff team. The talent is, I mean, nobody's there with the Dodgers, but this team, I think, could could easily win either of the other two divisions. But at the same time, you look at that pitching staff, and there's a non-trivial chance that it's Zach Davies and a bunch of guys you never heard of by at some point because it you know, because nobody could stay healthy. Uh, so it's they've still got a lot of holes, but they've got so much star power. They've got so much young talent. They've got a fair amount of depth now uh, after the Tommy Pham trade. Um, it's. I like this team a lot. I'd go over. I'm curious what you think the ceiling is for them. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty much a push at 83. I, I think I'd go under if I have to go one way or really? another, but there's a lot of variance there and I could see a, a pretty high ceiling, but also a somewhat low floor because of the, the, the pitching uh, issues you mentioned. What is the low floor for you? Well, that's like, I mean, we're coming off watching them be one of the worst teams in baseball in the second half of last season or late last year, which was kind of confounding to me. I, I didn't think they were going to be a playoff team last year, but they started out at least keeping it close and being competitive and looking like they were really taking a step forward and then everything sort of fell apart and I know Tatis got hurt and and was missing for much of that time but that wasn't the only issue and so seeing them be so bad for an extended stretch made me think that they're not quite ready to take a a huge leap so again this is basically where I would expect them to be I, I think they could be a winning team but I just don't know that I see them getting significantly over. Plus, we've already projected the Dodgers to win every interdivision game this season. So I don't know how many wins are actually out there for anyone else. Well, here's a team that they kept a little bit closer than uh, than I might have expected in the second half. Diamondbacks won 85 games last year. They are uh, tagged for 84 and a half is the line here. Uh, you know, they had some fluky up and down things. They also made a couple of. Uh, you know, they well, first of all, like you don't expect Christian Walker to hit the way he did last year. You but they don't have Zach Greinke, at least for the first uh, two thirds of the season. He was by far their best pitcher. But they've also picked up a couple good players. You know, they've done you know, what I talked about the Phillies and White Sox doing. They went out and signed Madison Bumgarner. They went out and traded for Starling Marte. I think they've this is a solid team. I think 85 ish is is about right. Mm-hmm. I guess I'd go over, but I think they've got a little bit of a lower ceiling than the the Padres do. Yep, I agree. I, this is right about where I would put them, but if pressed, which I am, I would take over. I, I just, they have a, a recent track record of making smart moves and getting more out of guys from a player development perspective. And it's hard to say if that's repeatable, but it seems to me that they have a pretty savvy front office right now. And yes, maybe some of those guys regress from last season, but I like a lot of what they've done, and I I think they could get over that number. The well-constructed 85-84 win team is about the Diamondbacks brand Mm -hmm. right now, I think. Uh, The one team, so I was in Rockies camp today. Uh, Apparently today, Sports Illustrated came out with a prediction that they're going to go 66 and 96. Vegas is a little more bullish at 73 and a half on the Rockies, Uh, but this was all... uh, all, all the buzz at Rockies camp today. This led to Bud Black uh, answer, starting a, a question uh, or starting an answer in, in a scrum with, well, everyone's born with skin, which is a, a great out of context quote that I sure you made sense once he finished the sentence. But yeah. uh, I, I, I'm more bullish on this team than, than Sports Illustrated seems to be. But that still gives you a lot of, of room to go under 73. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad there's some buzz in Rocky's camp that's not about the franchise player yelling at the GM and vice versa. But I would go under on 73.5. Just talking about teams that did nothing this offseason, the Rockies were maybe at the front of that line or back of that line. They they really made no effort to upgrade, and they seem to have deluded themselves into thinking that they are a contending team as currently constructed, which I just can't really see myself. So. I don't think they get anywhere close to that. And as far as I can tell, their window more or less seems to have closed. I I don't know. And I think that's probably the source of Nolan Arenado's frustration this offseason. Not only the constant trade rumors and the miscommunication, but 
the total lack of upgrades and investment in the team at a time when it seemed like if you're going to go for it, you have to go for it now. And I was disappointed with what happened last year because the 2018 Rockies rotation was one of my favorite stories of that season. We all kind of convinced ourselves, hey, they figured out Coors Field and they actually assembled a strong homegrown rotation for once. And then it took a huge step back this year. And I still believe or it took a huge step back last year. I still believe in at least a couple of those guys like Gray and Marquez, but I don't know that we see the the Freeland deer again. There are like five or six starting pitchers who I like in theory when they're at their best. And their problem over the past couple of seasons has been getting those guys to fire on all cylinders at the same time. And, you know, I don't know what to expect out of Kyle Freeland this year or John mm-hmm. Gray or, you know, or Peter Lambert, if he ever gets healthy. So there's, there's a lot of players I like individually on this team. Uh, I just, for some reason, the, the, some of the parts is, is underwhelming. I think just because you look at, you look at this roster and you know, it's not as good as Padres. It's not as good as Diamondbacks. It's not as good as the Dodgers. And just being in a, in a division with those three teams, uh, they're going to lose a lot of, they're going to lose a lot of games to better teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that it might just be, you know, I, I think 73 is is not wildly optimistic, but I think I'd, I'd go a little bit under here. I think mm-hmm. they probably end up in the in the 70 win range. Yep. And that takes us to right. the Giants. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's gee. all the enthusiasm we can muster for them, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'll just say, like, you know, I enjoyed the early 2010s okay, and I'm glad they're trying to, to recapture the magic of, of some of that. Just... Boy, yeah, it's uh, it's a bland looking roster right now. It's sixty seven point five. I've got to go under on that. There, there are just so few bright spots here. Really, I mean, it just feels like a bunch of guys playing out the string. It does, you know? yeah. And you know, I, and I respect how they came by that. Honestly, I think, uh, you know, they rode that core, the core that won three World Series. So, you know, it's hard to complain about this. Uh, They they rode it until it, you know, until it fell apart. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, I if you're a Giants fan, I don't don't know how you could have any complaints about how the last decade or so is gone. But it's it's going to be tough sledding for a little while. I I would also go under 67 half. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy that Hunter Pence is back. That's a fun story. And I'd love to think that there's something left in Johnny Cueto. And it'd be nice to think that Buster Posey's power will come back and Mike Yastrzemski won't be a one-year number. We could see, don't listen to this, Claire McNair, but it's not, you know, Buster Posey's power doesn't come back. We could definitely see, uh, see Joey Barton, the majors this season. So there are individual reasons to, to watch this team. I think, think mm-hmm. um but i think it's pretty clearly the worst in the division agreed uh, yeah all right so that uh is is predictions thank you for making predictions ben well this is uh, my, you, my favorite type of prediction that. where someone else makes the prediction and then i just say whether where i agree have with a, it or not well you have a 50 percent <laughs> <Right>. chance of <laughs> much <laughs> so. less painful prediction than if you had just asked me to set the over-unders this isn't so much predicting as prediction grading. Exactly. So Ben's yes. like the teacher. I'm, I'm critiquing <laughs> someone else's projections. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Uh, thanks for coming on, Ben. Uh, and uh, we'll be back right after this. All right. So here we return for the second half of the show uh, with Ringer staff writer Zach Cram, who has promised me takes. Cram dog, tell me about your takes. I have takes. Well, sort of. They're like half takes. The the idea I came up with for this segment was basically, you know, you and Ben are very reasonable, responsible people who talked about over-unders in the first half. And I think here we should get a little irresponsible in coming up with predictions for the National League in the 2020 season. So for you, I have prepared a few half-takes, things I kind of half-believe will happen. And you haven't seen this before. I want to present them to you and try to make a case and then see how much I can convince you about each one. I'm, I'm excited good? to I'm excited to see you explore the realm of what you consider to be unreasonable, because as much as you think Ben and I are measured, I think you're a very straight shooter most of the time. So uh, if you, I, I want to see what the outside of the envelope looks like for you, you might believe that. But uh, let's just get into the first one, because you might not believe that any longer when I say to you that in 2020, the Miami Marlins will not finish in last place in the NL East. What say you? I think that's fucked up. That, that I, I mean, so you go into the so I mean, you haven't heard 
extent been to my over-under segment, but like the one thing I know about the National League East, I want to predict nothing else about that division. It's going to be chaos. It's going to be just blood and gore all over the place. I have no idea how the first four teams in that division are going to line up. The one thing I know is that the Miami Marlins are going to finish in last place. Uh, so if you, I, I'm willing to, to hear you out to a certain point on this. Uh, cause that, that actually legitimately might be the most ridiculous thing I've heard you say. And what the, the four years we've known each other, this is well, ridiculous. So let me provide a few pieces of evidence in favor. Number one is that, uh, something we talk a lot about a lot on this podcast is that it's a lot easier to go from terrible to good or decent at a position than it is to go from good to great. And if you look at the Marlins, not just last year, but year after year, they have a lot of terrible on their roster, but this off season, they actually went out and acquired like major league players, which is a big upgrade for them. They added Jesus Aguilar and Corey Dickerson and Matt Joyce. They got Jonathan VR when the Orioles decided to get rid of him for some reason. So they have like competent major league hitters add to that group, like Brian Anderson, who I think is pretty decent. They have Jorge Alfaro, who's your favorite player. I love Jorge so Alfaro. If they finish last, it won't be his fault. Um, and then also, if you look at the rotation, I think they like they legitimately might have a better rotation than the Phillies. Obviously, they don't have an Aaron Nola at the top, but I believe in Caleb Smith, who's been very good for stretches the last two seasons. And they just have a lot of good young pitchers with the potential to be a lot better than that. And, and my last point of evidence is we like Pakota. We like projections. Pakota only has the Marlins six games behind the Phillies. Now, obviously, all four of the other NL East teams have designs on the playoffs. They could all finish 500 or better, but it's not completely absurd to think that the Marlins could get up to like the mid to high 70s and wins. And one of those other teams, probably the Phillies collapses. So I like, first of all, I like that you're sharing this with me and immediately predicating this entire house of cards on the, on the foundation of the Phillies just completely going to shit. So uh, I, I also like how you mentioned that like the list of, of competent big leaguers includes a guy who couldn't stick with the Orioles and Jonathan VR. What do you mean he couldn't? He, I, he had like four war last season. He couldn't stick with them because he makes like more than $500,000. All right. That's true. I'm being a, a little bit, uh, a little bit outrageous there. Um, not that I should have to apologize to you for this. Cause so I don't know where like you see there's not that much upside for guys like Anderson and Dickerson, even if they are competent big league hitters, which is certainly like uh, your points well taken that that's more than you can say uh, for some Marlins teams of the past. But they also have two guys who are supposed to be in the starting lineup, Isan Diaz and Lewis Brinson, who could very well hit 160 this year. Both of those guys are very talented, great athletes, and they have been the core of the uh, of. I don't know if we even want to dignify what the Marlins are doing with with by calling it a rebuild. Um, but th these are guys with serious swing and miss issues. And, and, you know, you could say the same thing for Alfaro. You could say the same thing for VR. So I just don't know. Like, I'm looking at this lineup, and apart from Dickerson, I'm not sure who you're going to rely on to get on base and score runs. You know, it, it, as, as far as the starting rotation maybe being better than the Phillies, like, saying apart from Aaron Nola, in in that sense is okay maybe apart from Aaron Nola it's close I, I think you could stretch it to that but also like Aaron Nola is a big deal he's one of the best pitchers in the division uh you know apart from I you know I like Yamamoto you know Jose Arena had had kind of a, a down year last year maybe he bounces back but I just don't know who on this rotation gets to even like above average and Nola will definitely be there. And as much as I drag on, on a Zach Wheeler, like I take him over anybody in this rotation in a second, you know? So like there are a few guys in the bullpen, you know, Brandon Kinsler, Ryan Stanek, uh, who, who could be useful, but like, I don't know, maybe half of this roster is made up of, of guys who I'm sure are competent big leaguers. And as far as like overlooking, the team with with Harper and Hoskins and D. Gregorius and Aaron Nola or the Mets or the defending World Series champions, I remind you, or the defending division champions like they're, they've got so far to go. I so I will say this, though, I appreciate that you have set this challenge and you have delivered what you said you were going to deliver immediately. Uh, so from that perspective, it's a good start uh, as far as people taking your baseball analysis seriously. I'm not quite so sure.
I just want to say, like, I don't need Corey Dickerson to come out here and hit like Lou Gehrig. You the might. Marlins, if you think they're going to finish fourth, you might. The Marlins last year, their entire group of position players were worth 2.6 war. Brian Anderson alone was worth 3.1. So that meant every other Marlins position player combined was below replacement level last year. At the very least, Dickerson and VR and Aguilar are replacement level or better. So I'll move on to the next take. I just want to say when the Marlins are like 24 and 30 uh, at some point in the season and the Phillies are 22 and 33, like, yeah, remember this conversation. Okay. I, if that happens, I will definitely remember this conversation. Okay. What, take what do you no- have next? Take number two. Uh, I'll do another team one, and then I'll move into some player ideas. Number two is that the Dodgers will lead the major leagues in runs scored. And this might not sound outlandish at first, but it's obviously hard for the National League to compete with the AL at the top of the league in runs scored because they have pitchers batting instead of the DH. Since the big bread machine in the 1970s, 42 of 43 of the major league leaders in runs have been American League teams. Do you, do you have a guess on who that lone NL team is? There's I mean, no way you get it, so I'd be incredibly impressed. Not right off. What is it, like the 1995 Rockies or something? The 1990 Mets led by Daryl Strawberry. You're right. I was. You could have given me 100 guesses. I would no idea. Come up with that. But so they are the only team since the mid-70s uh, to lead the, the majors in runs from the National League. And my proposition to you is that the Dodgers will actually be that team this year. So th- you're right. This doesn't sound uh, certainly not as outlandish as your first take. Uh, but I'm I'm really blown away by the amount of offensive talent in that lineup. And it's not just this is a you know 100 and change win team that added uh, Mookie Betts that's going to have a full season of Gavin Lux. It's going to, I don't know, they could, they could honestly withstand a few injuries like they did last year and still be one of the best uh, offenses in baseball. I'm curious what your rationale is for some American League team isn't going to isn't going to jump up because I mean, like I, I guess I could see what the Yankees are all hurt again. The Astros, you would expect some regression if they're if they don't know what pitch is coming or maybe just this is a distraction that that causes the team to to take a little bit of a hit. Is is that it? Is, is it just that there is this outstanding uh, offense in the National League and you don't see uh, an equivalent one in in the American League? Or is it? Well, else? so uh, most of this is about my believing in the Dodgers. I think. Last year, the Dodgers, uh, both of the last two years, the Dodgers have finished fifth in the league in runs as the top NL team at Fangraphs this year. They're also projected to come in fifth. Uh, But if you look at the four teams that finished ahead of them last year, number four was the Red Sox, which they lost Mookie Betts and he went to the Dodgers. Number three is the Astros. Number two is the Twins. And number one is the Yankees. Uh, So I think, I mean, you yourself just gave reasons that the Yankees and the Astros could easily fall down. And yes, I know that all the Yankees were hurt last year, but I don't expect Gio Urshela and Mike Talkman to hit like all-stars again. Uh, and I think the Twins might have the best offensive baseball. They added Josh Donaldson and didn't lose any of their key players, but I could also see some just natural regression from players like Polanco and Rosario, who might have overperformed a bit last year. And I think your point about the Dodgers' depth is so important because Uh, I'm writing a piece for Friday that includes uh, mention of the Dodgers playing time. And it's just absurd to think of what their bench is going to be like and just the depth they'll have to withstand injuries and to pitch hit for their pitchers. And I just think it's really possible that this could be a historically great offense. Yeah. One thing that I want to keep it, keep an eye on uh, in terms of improvement for last year or improvement from last year for the Dodgers is their catcher situation. Last Mm -hmm. year, their most used catcher uh, with, 242 plate appearances was Austin Barnes, who has shown some flashes of on-base ability, but has typically not been that good an offensive player. Last year, he hit 203, 293, 340. Uh, This year, I would expect the Lions share that playing time to go to Will Smith, who uh, is a guy I've been on since he was at Louisville, who at least in a a small cameo last year hit 253, 337, 571. I think he's a great athlete. I think he uh, has a great feel to hit for, for a catcher. And there's adding Mookie Betts. There's adding Gavin Lux, who I, I think has really jumped off uh, jumped off the, the charts in terms of prospect rankings uh, this offseason. I, I think this is a stretch. Like, if you made me predict which team was going to win the league and or uh, lead the league in, in runs scored. I'd probably still say the Astros or the Yankees or the the twins as much as I think you're right that uh, that they've got some regression coming. But this is not outside the realm of possibility. 
it's not supposed to be perfect. These are half takes. I will say one thing I'm really interested in with the Dodgers is uh, their Pocota projections or win projections. It was something like 102, 103 wins, um, which is outrageous for something as naturally conservative as a projection system. Uh, and you look at the the histogram that they publish, like this is not, it's not outside the realm of possibility that the Dodgers under the right circumstances could make a run at 116 or even 120 wins this year. I think that they're that talented. They're that far ahead of the rest of the NL. My, uh, half take for the Dodgers was almost that they're going to set the, uh, live ball era record for national league wins. And then I realized that's only 108. And yeah. I don't actually think that's an outlandish take no, at all. I, so I, actually, I felt I had to go bolder. Yeah, I think that there might be an even money chance or better of that happening. All right, what's number three? So number three is uh, a ringer special, uh, which is that friend of the site, Tommy Edmond, will lead the Cardinals in position player war, even though he might not even be an opening day starter. <laughs> okay, you're going to have to walk me through this one. I mean, first of all, just look at the math. Edmond was worth... 3.8 war in basically half a season last year. So extrapolate that, and he's a seven and a half win player MVP candidate. Uh, in all seriousness, I think that's some good the, math, Zach. I lo- I, <laughs> I like the boiling everything down to first principles there. The strength of the Cardinals is, I I don't think they have any star players, but they have a lot of good players. Like Paul Goldschmidt, I don't think is going to hit like he did in Arizona anymore. Paul DeYoung, Colton Wong. These are all good players, but I don't think any of them is going to put up like a five or six win season. And I'm not saying Tommy Edmond is going to do that, but if you combine his ability to fill in at a lot of positions, his good defense, his on-base ability, uh, speed, I, I just think he's the kind of player who you look up at the end of the season and he's put together like four and a half wins because he just adds at the margins everywhere. You know, he might only add two and a half wins at the plate, but then he adds another win or so on defense and he adds some base running and he's able to play every day for giving guys rest. And I think Tommy Edmond, uh, some people think that his rookie year uh, line overstates his potential, but I believe uh, that that stat line is actually like certainly within reach this season. Okay. So you and I had an argument last uh, or earlier this week about, uh, the potential going forward for Yoan Mankata. And I think, I don't remember if we talked about Tim Anderson, but Mankata having one of the highest BABIPs uh, in the live ball era. And I just want to share a couple numbers that I looked up. Uh, Tommy Edmond last year, 4.6% walk rate, not great. Uh, 346 BABIP. And he does have a good, um, this is not the the stat cast version of, of these stats. This is uh, fan graphs where they put it into buckets. Uh, his hard and medium contact rate are pretty good, but his home run to fly ball ratio last year was almost three times what it was in any of his uh, his full minor league seasons. So this just across the board, it screams fluky rookie season to me. You know what the answer and- is? It's juice ball because his home run to fly ball rate in the minors last year in AAA where they had the juice ball was exactly what it was in the majors. So, but see, I got you. I know. God, this sucks. Wait, this uh, is a fundamental so, question, though. So, like, how willing are you to trust players' performance now when you have to also trust that MLB is not going to change the ball on you? This is this is actually my biggest question mark with the Twins. Uh, is, I think, a lot... Like, you look at that lineup, and they've got power all the way up and down the lineup, but they don't have this much power. They don't have greatest power-hitting team of all time. Uh, power and which is what they showed last year so like a lot of what we're counting on from them you know you mentioned Polanco and Rosario Mitch Garver's a guy who who comes to mind like these are not five six hundred slugging percentage people and I think Tommy Edmond I'll say this Tommy Edmond is 10 times the player I thought he was going to be when he was coming out of Stanford Um, but I think what he showed last year is just two or three notches above what I think we can expect from him uh, going forward uh, offensively, which is not to say that his ability to fill in all over the field isn't useful, not to say that he's not a good defender, base runner, and hitter. I just, the power is, I just don't think he's a, a, a 350 OBP guy for the rest of his career. I I think the power is, as best case scenario, the result of the juice ball. Um, so as much as I love Tom, I, I mean, I guess we're not uh, contra- as contractually obligated to love Tommy Edmund now that Donnie's not here anymore, but as much as I love Tommy Edmonds' game, 
uh, best player on the Cardinals or at least most valuable player on the Cardinals. Was it position player? Or position player. player. He okay. doesn't need to be Flaherty. Yeah, you're in the you're in the tank for Jack Flaherty. Um, I don't. I I just don't trust these numbers as much as you do. That's okay. I think that's the bottom line. Well, I'm about to give you some numbers you're going to trust even less because my last half take. I'll give you an option. I, I wasn't sure which one to say, but it's both about the same player. So either Felix Hernandez accrues higher pitching war than any Mariner or Felix Hernandez pitches in a playoff game. And I sold. can see you on the I'm screen. Sold. I love both waving your fists right now. <laughs> I love it. Oh my God. We're talking about, so we've been talking about like funny slash weird slash slash sad things that could happen this season. Felix Hernandez pitching in a playoff game with the Braves would just be, I love it. I, it, it would just, it would be the cherry on top of 20 years of absolute dog shit misery for the Seattle Mariners, which I, I, I certainly wish no ill will on the Mariners or their fans. Uh, but as a lover of irony, uh, it would be incredible. Um, and to lay out uh, to the listeners, Felix Hernandez uh, signed a minor league contract with the Braves. He's pitching in spring training for them as a non-roster invitee, uh, and he's pitching well. He's thrown four games, 1.98 ERA, better than a strikeout per inning, which is important given how his strikeout rate at the major league level has collapsed over the last few seasons. He hasn't allowed a home run yet. And obviously, the competition he's facing is not the kind of competition he would face in the NL East this season, uh, particularly against uh, the 1927 Yankees, by which I mean the Miami Marlins. But Felix Hernandez also found himself in a pretty good position to nab a rotation spot because the Braves uh, also signed Cole Hamels this winter, but he's now hurt. They'll probably need a fifth starter on opening day. And the way he's throwing in spring training, it kind of feels like Felix is going to get there. Well, will he hold on to that all season, both when Hamels comes back and with all the Braves pitching prospects coming up? Maybe not, but uh, I want to believe. And I think when I saw that he signed with the Braves, I was like, oh, we're probably not going to hear from him again. This is just kind of what people do at the end of their careers. Uh, But the last few starts have really made me believe. And that's why you have these two takes. I think so. I'm just looking at the Mariners projected rotation just to see who the competition is going to be. so they got two guys, Kendall Graveman and Taiwan Walker, who have been very, very good in the recent past. And I'm not really sure about either of their ability to stay healthy enough to to pitch effectively in the big leagues at this point. Um, Has Kendall Graveman ever been really, really good? He's been maybe really, really good. Is is He's well, never had an ERA below four. Yeah, but he did a lot of that in the AOS. Well, here's... Here's what I'll say about Kendall Graveman. He's been really, really he's he was about league average for three years on some pretty mediocre Oakland teams. He was very, very good at, at Mississippi State. Uh, oh, well, so, in that case, you know what Felix um, Hernandez was doing when he was when he was the age Graveman was at Mississippi State was pitching like a Cy Young winner in, in the AL West. I mean, certainly, I don't think Kendall Graveman is going to be as good as, <laughs> as Felix Hernandez this year. You don't have to to convince me of that. I think Marco Gonzalez will probably be fine. Uh, I, you know, Kikuchi could be fine. Uh, Justice Sheffield, I think, still still has a lot of potential. He's going to have every chance to to reach that potential that the the Mariners saw when um, when they got him in the James Paxton trade. Do not ask me how he's about my my take from last year about how he will outwar Paxton over the course of the next two seasons because uh, that has not aged well. <laughs> um, I just, I I'm, I know you said this was a crazy take. I'm with you 100%. This is, I, I love it from just a storytelling perspective. I love it from just, it seemed, there's a, you could see the path so clearly uh, to how this actually comes to, comes to fruition. I'm going to drop this audio live when Justice Sheffield puts up like a six-war season and Felix Hernandez pitches seven games. Just so you guys know, I'm marking this one. Sure. Justice Sheffield is my dude. The this only is... number the only number that's going to approach six for Justice Sheffield this year is his walks per nine inning rate. God damn! <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I mean, with this exercise, I'm just happy that when I threw out the first Marlins take, it looked like Mike was going to step up and leave his microphone. He was so upset. And then I got to this final one and he was like waving his fist like he was Rocky. Uh, I love it. I'm just happy we got here. 
All right. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be tracking these takes as the season goes on, uh, particularly the Brian Anderson versus Lou Gehrig comparison that, that we alluded to earlier. Uh, and we will definitely bring these back up if if uh, Brian Anderson hits 47 home runs and hits 370 or whatever. All right, Zach, thanks for, for coming on. We'll uh, We'll talk again next week. Until then. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks, as always, to Ben and Zach for joining me, and special thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's show. Thanks also to Lance Lynn and Felix Hernandez for giving us stuff to talk about, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.